0: glad you're here this morning. If you're here for the first time, we hope you feel welcome. Uh, I'm hoping, too, that you'll have folks that will introduce themselves to you. If you're an unfamiliar face, that some folks will reach out to you and make you feel welcome. We uh, consider ourselves, in a lot of ways, consider ourselves a family, and sometimes that can make for Sunday mornings where we're busy catching up with each other and we miss uh, introducing ourselves to a new face. So I'm hoping this morning that we can... Um, Still be a family, but still make you feel welcome, so we're glad you're here. Uh, we're going to begin with prayer this morning, and then we have a message, and uh, our message this morning is about the church, and I'll give some more introductory remarks there in a moment, but um, something we do nearly every week is we pray for another church in town, and this morning what we're going to do, instead of praying for a particular church, we're going to pray for all the Christian churches in our context here that we share, uh, in some ways share stewardship in our community, so let's pray. God, this morning, before we climb into our message, considering, asking, and answering the question, what is the church? Lord, we want to lift up Christian churches in our community. Christian churches of all denominations that that believe in a triune God, that baptize as heaven was baptized this morning in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray for fidelity, we pray for unity. We pray even in different denominations, even in different churches that meet in different buildings, for a spirit of unity, like mindedness, a common and shared desire for your name and your fame and your glory and your renown in our community. God, I pray too for a common desire for the advancement of your kingdom. I ask your forgiveness on behalf of the churches in this community for a spirit of competition over likely decades. And God, I pray that you will continue to change the heart of your people here in this community to where we will cheer for each other and cheer for your name and your glory through each other's ministry. God, I pray too as a desire to honor other churches, the other brides in our community this morning, and this month that we will lift up the high standard, the beautiful picture of biblically what does it mean to be the church. I pray that you will be honored in that. I pray that we will be faithful in that. And pray that we will be an encouragement to others that we worship with in this community. We entrust this morning and this month to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I'm thankful for freedom of religion It's one of the things that we enjoy in our country, and it's not something we should ever take for granted. There are folks that are part of this church that are on the other side of the world, that are serving in capacities over there, sharing Christ and being salty and bright and aromatic there, advancing the kingdom, and they're in a context where the government determines what is a church and what isn't a church. It's a scary thing to think about, and considering what went down the last few weeks in Houston... Houston's mayor might appreciate that sort of design, subpoenaing local pastors and censoring pastors for their sermons and their content. Man, I'm thankful for freedom of religion and thankful that we can speak and communicate freely and enjoy God freely in this country. And I don't for a moment want to even invite the notion of an agency qualifying or disqualifying churches are supposed churches. But what I think is worth asking as the church this morning, not as a government, but as a church, asking and answering the question and considering what constitutes church biblically. What does the Bible say church is? Not what we think it is, or what we think it ought to be, or what even may, we may have experienced church is. What does the Bible say church is supposed to be? I thought for some time how frightening it is that anyone can buy or rent a building and stick a cross on the outside, super glue, a nail, whatever, and call it a church. And 15 minutes and $20 a time online and anybody can be ordained and call themselves a reverend and pastor that church. Christy and I went to a presentation a few weeks ago in Fort Worth, this store that's called Backwoods Adventure. You may have been to one of these stores. There's only a few of them around. There's one in Austin and one in Fort Worth. And years ago when we lived in Fort Worth, we used to go there. And they have some adventure tours that they put on from time to time. And they were sharing one night. We traveled over there on a Monday night to hear about It's a couple of tours that they were planning, one um, in New Zealand and one in uh, Chile. And they were sharing about one of their previous tours where they took a group of people up Mount Kilimanjaro and how the guide married a couple on Mount Kilimanjaro. They wanted to be married on that adventure trip. So this guide, we're all kind of looking at him like, are you a guide? He's been working for Backwoods Adventures for about 13 years. His name is Joe. He looks like the adventurous type. You'd hope that he'd look like he knew what he was doing. How in the world did you manage to marry this couple? And he said, well, $15 and 20 minutes online, and anybody can be ordained. And the room laughed. But I didn't think it was very funny. I thought, man, why would we take something so important, so serious, and make it so unimportant? Would you for a moment consider going to a doctor who spent 20 minutes online and $15 to get his doctor's certificate to treat you? Would you feel good about that? Would you feel good about even subjecting your pet to a veterinarian that spent $20 and 15 minutes online? Would you trust your child to a teacher that spent $15 and 20 minutes online for their certification? It's frightening to consider how easily someone can go online, get the title reverend, rent the building, stick the cross on the outside, and call that the church. Anyone, it seems, can have a building and meet weekly and share a message and sing some songs and maybe even have a sign outside with nifty messages that they change each week and may not be biblically... The church. I don't, for a moment, want to become that enforcement agency, and I don't think that's our role in this community. And that's not what we're doing this month, is trying to equip a bunch of Barney Fife's to drive around Greenville and say who's the church and who's not the church. We don't want to be in that business, but we do want to have a handle on God's definition of church some good reasons to have a handle on this. First of all, some of you, some of you young people are going to grow up to the age where then you launch into some different context. You go take a job somewhere. You get married, move off somewhere. You need to know what to identify is a healthy biblical church when you go looking. In some ways, we're equipping you to launch and identify where you can land and be fed. Some of you, you may have a move in your future you may not know about. Some of you do have a move in your future you know about. You need to know what to look for when you move. But it's not just for the future moves or just for the mobile. A good reason to ask and answer this question is so that we as a church can know what to plant and what to reproduce. We as a church consider church planting important. We're not building a dynasty here. We're not out to have the biggest church in Greenville. We're out to have a church that is multiplying. It's planting other viable, healthy churches where they can reach people in different contexts where we aren't. We need to know, first of all, how to identify where the church isn't. There may be lots of church buildings with lots of crosses stuck on the outside of lots of buildings and lots of reverends within, but there may be biblically a void of church or a a void of biblical church. So we need to know where it's missing by being informed from God's Word of what it is. And then we need to know what to plant. What to then go establish. And lastly, we need to know as a church how to walk in obedience ourselves. We need to know where we're falling short. We need to know what we ought to be. We need to know what His intentions are for the church. So in November... We're going to deal with this question. What even is church? Over the course of the month, I'm going to share some different things that that might happen if we don't ask this question. I'm going to share some different things that will help kind of develop further the problem. But that's as far as the development I want to, as far as I want to go in the develop this morning, I want to launch right off into our definition of church. We're going to, over the course of the month, develop a definition, a sentence of what the church is. And this morning we're dealing with one reality first, that the church is a people. The church is a people. Turn to Genesis chapter 12. Given that I established early on in this morning that we were going to try to ask and answer this question biblically, we will be spending our morning in the Word and we will be going to various places, and what our, my goal is this morning is that we're not parachuters. We could parachute into the New Testament, and we may really have no sense of how we got there. So instead of being parachuters into the New Testament, we're going to go back to the very beginning of the story. Not to Genesis 1 beginning, but not long after that, a beginning with a man named Abram. Genesis Chapter 12, we're going to establish first this morning that Israel was a people. Genesis chapter 12, now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God, from the very beginning, this this theme that's developing or this storyline that's developing through our Old Testaments, begins with this covenant that he makes with Abraham. And in this covenant, God calls Abram and he promises to make of him a great nation. What you're going to see in these next few minutes is what he's saying, I'm going to make of you a great people, a great nation, And a great people. So old man Abe with his old lady, Sarah, wife, has a little boy named Isaac. And then Isaac has Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob has 12 sons. And this family finds itself in Egypt. And in Egypt, a family becomes a people. They spend 400 years or so there and then spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. That's where we're going to pick up fast-forwarding 440 years later after they land themselves in Egypt to hear where they are perched, ready to go into the Promised Land. They're about to cross over the Jordan on dry ground. Moses is spending the book of Deuteronomy on Mount Nebo, coming up and back and forth down the mountain with a message for the people, preparing this people as they go into the promised land. And we're going to just consider a few passages over the course of this book. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20, is the first passage I want you to see. Here, God, through Moses, is encouraging the people as they go into this promised land not to worship idols, not to take on the Amorites, the Amalekites, the Jebusites, the Philistines, not to take on their gods. Here in verse 20, he says, "...the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace," that's out of Egypt, "...to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day." He was re- he's, he's informing and preparing these people or reminding them and equipping them with the reality that God rescued them for a purpose to be his people. It was rescue with design. They are rescued in order to be his people. Look over at chapter 7, beginning in verse 6. We're going to look at a handful of passages here in Deuteronomy. This one's probably the most informative of the ones we're going to look at. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, he says, You are a people. You're a rescued people. We've established that so far. Rescued for a purpose, so that they would be his people. You are a people holy are set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his purpose treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And it's not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's the, because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that oath that we read beginning our morning, that oath made to Abram that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh the king. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. Here in this passage, he establishes that he has calling, he has rescued a holy people set apart for the Lord. He has rescued a chosen people. They are a treasured people, this passage tells us. They are a loved people, this passage tells us and they are a redeemed people. It appears that God is basing his reputation on rescuing and redeeming and building a people. Have you thought about God that way, as a people builder, a people maker, a people redeemer? He's building his reputation on having rescued and redeemed and building this people turn, turn over to chapter 14. Look at verse 2. For you are a people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Look over later in the chapter in verse. 21, you shall not eat anything that is died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who's within your towns that he may eat it. Or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. This choice of this people, this building this people, this identity that he's given this people is so profound. It in fact, everything that they do. In fact, even to the degree of what they eat. That's how important it is. This people that he has rescued, this holy people, this chosen people, this treasured people, this loved people, this redeemed people, even to the point of what they eat, it's so profound. Look over at chapter 26, beginning in verse 18. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession. Do you think he wants this people to be aware that they are his people? It's easy to miss out on themes like this because very seldom do we read an entire book in one sitting. Very seldom are we intentional looking for repeated phrases, repeated words in a book. But here this morning, we're taking a little shortcut to some snippets and a theme that runs throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Before they go over into the promised land, don't forget you're a people (laughs) and a treasured people, that they had a treasured possession, and he's promised you that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he's made, and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. Their identity as a people is connected to their obedience. Why are they called to obey? Because they're his treasured possession. Obedience so easily flows from identity. And here he's building it into this people look at chapter 28 just across the page in verse 9 and 10 the Lord will establish you a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways and all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you a people who are identified a people who are called by the name of the Lord And now let's end the book over in chapter 33. It's not quite the very last scene of the book. The last scene is Moses' death on Nebo. This is just shy of that as he's blessing the nation of Israel just before he dies. And in case we've missed the theme up to this point, let's see how this book of Deuteronomy ends. In verse 29 of chapter 33, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, You're a people saved by the Lord. The shield of your help, the sword of your triumph, your enemies shall come fawning to you. You shall tread upon their backs. He is building into this people before they go into the promised land their identity as a people. And right here he's saying you're already a triumphant people built from a promise to an old man with a barren wife. A people was born in Canaan. A people was raised in Egypt. And then Israel as a people is led out of Egypt through mighty acts of judgment called the plagues. And then a people crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. A people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. A people crossed the Jordan into the promised land. And then God continues to engage them as a people blesses them as a people and judges them as a people now let's fast forward 900 years turn to the book of daniel we're going to look 8 900 years later to a man named daniel daniel chapter 9 is where I would like for you to look. We're going to see how one of these members of this people thinks 900 years later. We're going to think about, we're going to take a look at how this member of this people prays. This man that we're going to consider here in a moment is now in exile in Babylon by himself. As far as we know, he just has a few of his pals with him. They're Babylonian names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the more well known versions of their names maybe his only buddies. He's probably here without his family, by himself as an individual. Let's see how this member of this people, 900 years after this, after where we were just reading, let's see how he prays, beginning in chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Mede who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I... You're an individual, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And then I turned my face to the Lord. He's by himself there as far as we know. Just got a couple of his buddies. We don't know where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are at this point. But Daniel says, I perceived the number of years that must pass before the end of the exile. And I, as an individual, turned my face to the Lord and prayed, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Watch this we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules notice what he didn't pray i daniel here in babylon i ask your forgiveness for checking out that great look in babylonian gal yesterday now he may have had those prayers from time to time we don't know that but at least the recorded prayers homeboy's not praying like an individual He's praying as an individual, but watch how he prays with we's and ours and us's, identifying himself as part of a people. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame, As as at this day to the men of Judah to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you've driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. Now, Daniel, if you know Daniel's story, Daniel is not a shameful dude. He's the guy that we show our kids in our little Sunday school classes a beautiful picture of faith. In fact, he's in the faith chapter, or at least alluded to, rescued from the mouths of lions. Yet he's praying as an us. He's praying as part of a people. He's seeing himself as an individual, praying as part of a people. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. It's we that landed us in Babylon. It's a we thing. Our people are guilty. We've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. Man. Man. Let's keep reading. Let's just take this in, this individual, praying and thinking as a part of a people. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there's not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill because of our sins. And for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate, When you really take this in and you consider this individual representing the people of God and praying as a member of this people, identifying himself even with their guilt, even with their consequence. He's not saying, God, I wish you would just do in those guys that caused us all to land here in Babylon and Assyria. All those guys that were unfaithful. He's identifying himself with the people of God as unfaithful. He sees himself as fitting into one big story, as one little tiny cog of one big machine, the people of God. And here he is, this little bitty piece, begging for forgiveness for the other pieces and the whole. He sees himself as part of a people. Man, the reason I think this just just doesn't even register for me is because I'm a modern Westerner just like you. And I don't mean a Westerner like wearing cowboy boots. Westerner. I mean an American. We view ourselves as individuals. It's something that's built into us. We won't want to be cogs. I read somebody something somebody was quoting the other day, and they referred to something called sheepism, it's kind of an urban dictionary type word. Sheepism, where you just a bunch of sheep. You know, you don't want to be in some crowd, a bunch of sheep with no identity and no mind and no decision of your own, just following the crowd like a lemming we don't like that idea, especially not as a bunch of Americans Man, individualism is built into us from the very beginning, we don't like to be a cog we don't like to be a part we want to be unique as I read Daniel's prayer here, I'm reading this prayer saying I don't pray this way I don't even think this way because I think like an individual, probably like you do. Years ago, when we considered this sermon series for the first time, I considered advertising. Maybe advertising's to blame here in the in our context. You know, maybe um, we can consider the things that we're inundated with that maybe have built into us this identity as individuals, as islands. I read this quote about advertising from a guy named Stephen Leacock. He said, Advertising may be described as a science of arresting human intelligence long enough to get money from it. I like that, man. If you really pay attention to the, to the commercials that we watch, you t- sometimes Christian and I turn to each other, are we this stupid? Is anybody really this stupid that they would buy this because of this commercial? And apparently they work. But individualism is a theme of advertising, especially here in America. Individualism has come to be understood as one's self-expression and self-reliance, the ability to be independent and powerful. And the counter to individualism is conformity or sheepism or being like a lemming. We don't want to do that. Not me. I'm going to show you a video of an Adidas commercial that was out a few years ago. Let's go ahead and run that video. I want you to watch this and listen for the message of the video. This is Muhammad Ali. Some people listen to themselves rather than listen to what others say. These people don't come along very often. But when they do, they remind us that once you set out on a path, even though critics may doubt you. It's okay to believe that there is no can't, won't, or impossible. They remind us that it's okay to believe impossible is nothing. do Someone See that little flash there at the very end? It's an Adidas commercial. I mentioned that beforehand. But I want you to think about this for a minute. That's an Adidas commercial. The theme of this commercial, the point that's being made, and their quote, there are those that listen to everybody else and those that listen to themselves. And the ad is making the statement soberly that there are very few who do the latter, listening to themselves like an individual. The cultural value of individuality, self-actualization, and independence is the selling value for the product that Adidas is aiming to put forth. Adidas is is trying to, to be conceived as a product that individuals will buy, that independent thinkers will purchase. And think about that for a minute. If this commercial is successful... Then all these individuals, these free thinkers, are gonna go out and buy the shoes and they're all gonna be walking around. Nobody's gonna be wearing Adidas. The more this appeals to the individual, the more homogenous the brand. Everybody's wearing Adidas. Remember the quote that I read at the beginning: advertising may be described as a science of arresting human intelligence long enough to get money from it. You watch a commercial like this and you see Muhammad Ali out there getting some, and it's compelling. It's compelling because it speaks to the individual, the Rambo, the Muhammad Ali in every single one of us. Man, the irony here. I'm thinking it says there are those that listen to everybody else and that those that listen to themselves, and I'm sitting here thinking, man, and it says that there are very few that do the latter. Not in my experience. In my experience, we're really good at listening to ourselves. It's moving as sheep that is hard for us to do. Yet the church is to be different. The church is not to be like Muhammad Ali. Put that uh, Bird King ad up here. Some of y'all remember this Bird King ad from years ago? Have it your way. Let's put you right at the center of things. Let's put Muhammad Ali, let's put Rambo right at the center. You have the right to have what you want exactly when you want it because on the menu of life, you are today's special. And tomorrow's and the day after that. And well, you get the drift Yes, that's right. We may be the king, but you, my friend, are the almighty ruler. Okay, you can take that down. Appealing to the individual. We love it. We love it. Give me that Burger King burger. Give me those Adidas shoes, because the individual in me really, really enjoys it. In the 90s, when I was in in the Marine Corps, the Army came up with an advertising pitch. And you might be familiar with it. You might remember it. An Army of One. You might remember some of those commercials. An Army of One. And it was funny because the guys that were on active duty in the Marine Corps and ironically the guys that were on active duty in the Army were saying, that's kind of stupid. Because an Army of One isn't effective at anything. And an Army, if it's to be effective, or a Marine Corps unit, is not to be effective as a bunch of individuals. But remember, we were out on the heels of Rambo who was, in fact, an army of one, and we loved it because we love the message that appeals to individualism. But the church is to be different. Why does this message of individualism appeal to us? I think probably at heart because we're all glory thieves, and we love to be the center of things, and we love to be made much of, and we don't need our human intelligence to be arrested for long for these sorts of things to appeal to us. But the church is to be different. Imagine for a minute if Daniel was to be praying like a modern, if Daniel prayed like a modern Westerner. Imagine Daniel's prayer. I alluded to one of them. God, Father, forgive me for looking at that hot Babylonian babe. I'm not saying he didn't ever pray that, but at least it's not recorded. He's praying as an individual for a people, But imagine Daniel's prayer that might have gone something like this. God, I want you to bless my personal quiet time today where it's just you and me against Babylon. It's not the way he prays. Because he's not seeing himself as a little Rambo out there, as a little Muhammad Ali, Christian Muhammad Ali. He's seeing himself as part of a people. His view was panoramic. His view was panoramic as part of a part of a big story, as a little bitty tiny but important cog in a big machine in the people of God as part of a people. Man, I want you to just ask yourself this question for for a moment. Do you think this way? Do you think this way? There are those who listen to everybody else and those who listen to themselves and there are a few who do the latter. You might remember the theme in the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Man, that's the natural man. Left to his own device. Those aren't hard to find. (laughs) That's everywhere. But the church is different. The church is still a people. And the church is to view ourselves as a people like Daniel saw himself. We're going to look at three passages in the New Testament. Now, establish that we've not, we're not parachuting, turn to the book of Galatia, or Galatians. Let me tell you a little bit about Galatia as you turn there. I have a whole new affection for this book, having studied for this week and prepared for this week. This book was written to the brothers in Galatia or. From the brothers who are with me, this would be Paul, to the churches of Galatia is what it says in chapter 1, verse 2. To the churches in Galatia. Break down the word Galatia and you can, this first few letters tells us these are, this, this Gauls is what established or who lived in Galatia. The Gauls were Celtic tribes. The Gauls moved into this area, this area called Galatia, About 280 B.C., and it wasn't kind of a passive, let's just move in. in." They took it by force. If you know anything about the Gauls or the Celts, you know they didn't take things. They didn't just move in. They took things by force. These are Celtic tribes. These are the people that became the Scotch-Irish. That's why I just kind of enjoy this visceral connection to this book of Galatians now. The McGraws, the McCulloughs, some of the other Irish Scotch among us. These are our people here in Galatia. Who knew? Galatians. Galatia got its name from the Gallic and Celtic tribes who settled here. To the Romans, the Galatians lived on the margins of civilization, plundering temples, sacking cities, and inspiring fear throughout the Asian countryside. This is pretty cool. I've always thought this was kind of cool about these guys. They often fought naked with rhythmic chanting. You know these guys and sometimes I found some records that showed that they would light their hair on fire before they went into battle. Naked with their hair on fire. I'm just going to say that if I'm fighting an enemy that's naked with their hair on fire, you win. <laughs> I'm running. Naked dudes beat me every time. You're you're on the winning team. I'm losing and running. These I'm telling you, these Gauls, these Celtic folks, they were bad to the bone. Primitive bunch. That's who's in Galatia. The chieftains in these, in, this Celtic, in these Celtic tribes were notorious for Druid-style, ritualized human sacrifice. That's the background for the book of Galatians. That's the people Paul is writing to, and that Paul was there in the flesh, too, establishing the church. Man, think about that for a minute. A pretty rough, primitive bunch scars on their head from the last fight that they lit their hair on fire crazy tough bunch now listen let's climb in to this book in chapter 3 beginning in verse 7 there were likely some Jews in this church as well. This church has been influenced by some Jewish teaching, teaching that it was some, some way they had to add to their salvation. It was not by faith alone, but let's add circumcision as well. They were called Judaizers that crept in, snuck into the church, teaching this false teaching. And Paul says, who bewitched you with this false teaching? And here he's developing this a little bit more in chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith, who are the sons of Abraham. So you former druids, you former warriors that fought naked with your hair on fire, you former Gauls and Celts, know that it's those who of faith are the sons of Abraham. When I was a kid, man, I remember learning the song in Sunday school, Father Abraham had many sons. Did anybody learn that song? Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. Let's all praise the Lord. <laughs> and they like, do these motion stuff. And every verse is the same. So you can, I mean, you just do different motions, I think, with your hands and stuff. Imagine a bunch of druids, former Druids, singing that song with some Jews. Some dudes with scars on their heads, Celtics, Gauls, singing that song right next to a Jew. Paul is saying, if you are by faith, then you are, If you are trusting Christ by faith, you are a son of Abraham. He's saying you're part of this people. Listen to what he continues to say. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. He's saying that you, you bunch of Celts, Gauls, Druids, former Druids, you're now part of this people of God. And Abraham is your father too, if you are trusting Christ by faith. This concept of a people is something that continues on in our New Testaments, but is often underdeveloped. Let's look later in the book, toward the end of the book in chapter 6. He's getting down to, he's, he's closing the book with a warning and benediction And beginning in verse 14, he says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. Here's that theme of the book. But a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, that rule of boasting only in the cross, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now that word and there can make that seem like we're talking about two different groups of people. Peace and mercy be upon those who live according to this rule, and peace and mercy be upon those who are the Israel of God. He's not talking about two different people. He's talking about the same people. That word and also means even. It's the Greek word kai and can be translated even and could be in context saying For all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, that is, upon the Israel of God. This is such a profound passage. He is telling a bunch of Celts and Gauls converted to Christianity that they are the Israel of God. He's calling them Israel. They're the new Israel. You hear me refer to this often. I hope you hear me refer to it often as the church, as the new Israel. That's where this comes from. Man, Father Abraham is your father too, you Celt. You former whatever, Ephesian, former Philistine. Man, that is such a profound passage. The church is the continuation of the people of God. Now let me just prepare you for something. We're going to look at two more passages, and I'll tell you where they are. One is in Ephesians chapter 2, and, and also 4, so three more passages, and then 1 Peter 2. But I'm going to prepare you for something at the end of this sermon, which we're getting close. You're going to see how practical that it, this is here in just a moment. This isn't just a data point for you to collect, some sort of academic, oh, okay, we're private people. This is so practical. You're going to see how relevant this is here in just a moment. Okay, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. The book of Ephesians, a large part of the book of Ephesians is dealing with, we've considered it these last few weeks, uh, the end of Ephesians, dealing with house rules, husbands love your wives, Christ loved the church, Wives, submit to your husbands. Children by your parents. You may remember that just a few weeks ago as we considered the marriage series. But the book of Ephesians as a whole is about a wall between Jew and Gentile being destroyed through the work of the cross and a new people being built. That's what the book is about. So listen to these passages in those terms, beginning in chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, you Ephesians... I didn't study the Ephesians context like I did the Galatians, but they're Roman Empire people. They're Gentiles. We could call them almost like Philistines. They're not Jews. And he's saying, you Gentiles, remember that these Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision or the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, Having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he made, that, that he might create in himself one new man. In place of two. Now, that word man there, I want to introduce you to a concept that you're going to see here again in a moment. When you read that word man, remember he's talking to a bunch of people in a church. He's talking to Jews and Gentiles. He's talking to Gentiles who once were far off, the Ephesians in this context, and he starts talking individual man. You two, Jew and Gentile, might become one. He's not talking about the church becoming one man. He's talking about through what Christ has done, the church, Jew and Gentile, becomes a whole new humanity. A whole new person. A whole new people. That's the context for this passage. That he is through his through his through the torn flesh, that he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and made one new man, one new humanity, in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This passage here is about what has been accomplished through the work of the cross in building a whole new people that includes Gentiles. Faithful Gentiles who have entered into this family and this people by faith. Flip the page over to chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. A few years ago, Christy and I were in a church when I was in seminary in Fort Worth. And we had a series of sermons on the old you and the new you. If some of you have been around church for a period of time and someone preached through Ephesians, I wouldn't be surprised if you had considered these passages in terms of the old you and the new you. And there was, pro, it was a prop on the stage. This was back when props started getting kind of popular with a sermon series. You know, you get a Lamborghini on stage if you're going to preach on riches or something. And I mean, guys do that. We've never done that here, but I don't know where we'd get one. But <laughs> this guy had a, a door on the stage. And he just kind of developed this storyline over the course of a series on the old you and the new you and passing through the door. And in, his, in the development, the door was the door of faith that you come into a new you. The old Brent becomes a new Brent. Pass through the door. It's pretty awesome. I mean, you think about it. But it's so individualistic. I mean, it's scratching the itch of the individual Western mind. Oh, you mean through faith the old Ben is gone? That's so good because I didn't really like the old Ben. And the new Ben has come. You know what I'm talking about because I bet you've been around, if you've been around the church any period of time, you know how that individualistic gospel message is shared. And a lot of it comes from this passage. But listen to this passage in light of what we just read in chapter 2. Listen to it in terms of humanities and peoples instead of you just becoming a whole new you. Beginning in verse 17. Now this I say and testify to the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Don't walk as your old people because you're not part of your old people anymore. Don't walk as the old man, if we want to use some of this language. Instead, walk as the new man. They are darkened in their understanding, the old man, the Gentiles, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy and practice every kind of impurity, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've learned about him and have been taught by him, and the truth is in Christ, to put off your old self. That word there is the word in Greek, Anthropon, man. To put off, it's the same word that was over there in chapter 2. To put off the old man, but read it and hear humanity. Put off that old humanity, which belongs to your former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. If he was talking to a bunch of individuals, he would have said, Put off your old selves and put on your new minds. Here he says minds, but his singular use of man tells us he's talking about something altogether different. He's not talking about the old Brent or the old Ben. He's talking about your old identity with a people called the Gentiles. You're part of a new people. Put off your old humanity which belongs to your former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Walk through that door of faith and put on the new humanity, not the new bin ding, complete with clean commercial, ding. It's not about you as an individual. It's about you putting on a new identity as part of a new people. Put on the new self, the new humanity, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Man, the only way that this, they could collectively put off a singular man and put on a singular man is to put off the old humanity of the Gentile people and put on the new humanity of the identity with the people of God. The people of God that are made up of the Gauls. And the Celts and the Ephesians, the former Druids, the Jews, men, women, rich, poor, every color, every size, broken down by his body, broken on the cross, and made into a whole new humanity. That's the church. Man, we, the church, are Abraham's offspring. We're the fulfillment of that promise made to him in Genesis chapter 12. A new people. Man, let's look at this last one together. This last one just streamlined, smooth, easy. Make a beeline to these realities. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes this letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia. We got our Scotch-Irish in there. Cappadocia, we got the guys that started making cappuccino. We've got Asians, we've got Bithynians, we've got people all over the Roman Empire he's writing this letter to. And you might think that he's writing to a bunch of Jews. You know, it's funny how Paul focused his ministry on Gentiles and Peter focused a lot of his ministry on Jews, but yet this letter is written to Gentiles by Peter. He's, written to, he's writing to Gentile believers. There are a couple of clues that he's writing to Gentiles here. One is in chapter 1, verse 14. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And then later in verse 18, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Those are both signs that he's writing to Gentiles here. And listen to what he says about some Gentiles over there in verse 9. He says, You bunch of Gentiles, you bunch of Celts, Gauls, Ephesians... All kind of Pontus Cappadocian believers. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Does that sound like Deuteronomy? All those passages we read in Deuteronomy, a people for his own possession. That's us. He's writing to the church. We're a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, you're a bunch of druids or whoever you might have been, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The church is a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. And once we were not a people, but now we are and here he puts in the same sentence, once you had not received mercy, but now you have. Do you realize how often that is the substance and whole of the salvation message? You need mercy and you find it through Christ. But this is put on par as you were not a people and now you are with you didn't have mercy and now you do. Some of you, this may be the first message you've ever heard pointing you toward the reality that you are a, you are part of a People. That is as much good news as you have received mercy. (laughs) Gracious, it's good news. Let me show you why. Let me show you why. I'm going to deal with just three things very briefly. That Viewing the church as a people deals with these three problems. And then it gives you one beautiful reality to live on and enjoy. These three problems I'll deal with first. The first is church as a building. I studied some church architecture history and found that the earliest church that we know of from archaeological records was in 229 AD in Syria, the Dura Europus is what it was called. It's the first one. There were plenty of others to study after that. In 312 A.D., Constantine took control of the Roman Empire, and Christianity became the religion of the empire. And Constantine loved building some basilicas, boy. Ooh-wee, some basilicas and churches. Man, anywhere something holy had happened. Somebody scratched their holy behind. The first church of the holy behind over here. Anything that happened in the church story, I mean, the the story of the the Old Testament, or when Christ was here, man, let's build a church there. These structures are built all over the world, connected to some holy event. Church of the Holy Sepulchre, built in Jerusalem, stuff like that. The birthplace, the baptism, Mount of Olives. And then in the middle Middle Ages, cathedrals were built all over Europe. And what I want you to realize is we have 1,800 years of developing view of the church as a building. 1,800 years of about a 2,000-year-old story. But if you go back to the very beginning, you find that church was a people. A people. It wasn't a building. It was a people. I was thinking about this... This week, I was talking with Christy and the kids about it. I said, you know, to call, the ch- to call where we meet the church would be like calling the synagogue the Jew. You drive by a synagogue, there's the Jew. That's not the Jew, that's where the Jews meet. It'd be like driving by a fire station and say, there's the fireman. That's not the fireman, there's a fireman. The fire station's over there. That's where the firemen hang out with the other firemen. It's more than semantics. It may seem like a small deal, but I promise you it's a big deal. It would be like driving by the Ott's house and referring to the Ott's house as the Ott's. There's the Ott. There it is. There's something wrong with that. And I'm going to show you why here in a minute. It limits some things that should not be limited. Because it will make church, in your mind, if you call it a place and you call church a building, then it will, be, it will become something that you attend. It will become something that you attend. You will begin to use language of going to church. And if you use language of going to church, then what happens when you're not going? Or what happens when you've already Gone. What happens between those times where you're going and gathering at that building, where you're supposed to do those churchly things? What happens to the rest of the time where you're still supposed to be the church? Oh, I'm not there. <laughs> it's not time to go yet. So I'm just me. And what this should build into you is realizing it's more than semantics, is we're the church when we dismiss. We're the church at L3. We're the church at the fire station. We're the church at the school. We're the church everywhere we go. We're the church at the hospital. The church is mobile and agile and it's salty and it's bright and aromatic as it deploys, equipped and worshiping out loud wherever it might go. And if it's limited to right here on Sunday morning, to a building, to something we attend, then man, how malnourished, how impotent is the church It's heartbreaking if you think about it. It's more than semantics. If we call the church a building, it becomes something that we attend and it can ultimately become something that's just an activity. If it's viewed as something that you attend and some place that you go, then it can be viewed as an activity and might eventually rank with other activities like bowling or shopping or sightseeing or exercising And might just find a wee spot in your busy schedule of activities instead of impacting everything in your schedule because it's who you are. Man, it's profound when you see yourselves as part of a people. You begin to see yourselves, and here's the treat: the treat at the end of the message. You begin to see yourselves as an identity. Rather than church as an activity, as an identity. And it will transform the way you think, it will transform the way you handle your money. Instead of saying, you know, I should do this with my money, and uh, you know, let's make a decision about whether we should do this with our money, whether we should be faithful and selfless and big-hearted and open-handed with our funds. And you say, well, maybe we should do this, maybe we shouldn't. You're kind of asking that question of what, what's the right thing to do here. Go back to how God tied obedience to their identity. And realize you when you begin to see yourself as the people of God, then you're not asking about whether or not we should do it. The question is, well, it's who we are. Of course we're big-hearted and open-handed. This is just who we are. It's not something that we deliberate about. It'll change your, your decisions about your time, your per- time priorities. Well, I can't launch off into this because it would take me away from who I am. Why do I gather weekly with God's people? Because it's who I am. Somebody asked us over breakfast yesterday. Christy and I were meeting with another couple they're not part of our church, but it was that, they, were, they asked us over breakfast. I said, You know, we're kind of struggling with, um, with our daughter having a difficult time going to church. And tell us, be real honest, do your kids like church? And I looked at him, I said, I've never asked him. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I really didn't even know. I, I was like, What? Well, it'd be like asking, Do you like being a McGraw? <laughs> It's who you are, joker. I don't care whether you like it or not. (laughs) Lord, have mercy. It's your identity. It just changes everything. Why do we gather corporately? It's because it's who we are. We never ask the question. Do I like this or not? (coughs) Think about that. Man, it will transform. Some of you that have teenagers, instead of saying, hey, teenage Bobby and teenage Sally, y'all don't go out and have premarital sex because it's wrong. Don't go out and play married because it's wrong. You have a much more powerful reason to say, don't go out and have teenage sex and play married with your boyfriend because it's not who you are. That's much stronger than, because you know you're not supposed to do that. Man, that guy has so much travel, not with just a bunch of teenagers, but should have travel with all of us. The church is a people. It's who we are. We're going to have our Lord's Supper, and I want you all to see this passage in 1 Corinthians. This is important that you see this development in 1 Corinthians because it lends evidence to what we're talking about this morning. It's an example in some ways and ties the table to our sermon. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17 if you know the story of the Corinthian church, you know that the Corinthians are not exactly the model church. Paul starts First or Second Corinthians with it—I can't remember which—with just a real emphasis of how much he loves them. And I'm just thinking, man, I hope I have that much love for somebody that's so hard to love because Corinthian church is a mess. It is what I would—what the word I would use from the Marine Corps—they are a soup sandwich. They are a mess. And this is an example of some of what's going on in the church in chapter 11, verse 17. And I know we traditionally may not have our Bibles open during, during the Lord's Supper, but I want you to have yours open and look at this. It's very important that you see what develops in this. Beginning in verse 17. In the following instructions, I do not commend you, Corinthian church. The great example right there that all preaching is not patting on the back. Some preaching is rebuke. Stiff rebuke. And that's what this is right here to the Corinthian church. I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Now, let's see why. Let's see why it's worse. Let's see what they're doing wrong. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, as a people, we've established this morning. When you come together as a people, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. But when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one... Look at that. Each one like a bunch of Rambos, like a bunch of Christian Muhammad Ali's, are thinking with your own minds doing what's right in your own minds, and each one is go ahead eating his own meal, doing his own thing, like a bunch of individuals. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What? Don't you like that? What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God, the people of God, and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now keep listening. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Now he's talking about the bread and the the cup right there, the bread and the wine, the body and blood of the Lord. Now he transitions to a different body. Listen to what he says next let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. He's not talking about the bread right there now. He's talking about a different body. He's talking about the church body. Whoever eats and drinks like a bunch of individuals, like a bunch of Rambos and a bunch of Christian Muhammad Ali's, Thinking on their own, doing what's right in their own eyes, without discerning the body, without the body in view, eats and drinks judgment on himself. He's saying, Don't do that because you're going to get sick and die. That's what he says next. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Discern the people. Discern the body. Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions When I come, what a beautiful example right here. Don't you gather and eat this supper like a bunch of individuals, because you're not. You're the body of Christ. You're the bride of Christ. You're the people of God. You discern the body wisely, examining yourselves to see if you're here as an individual just getting your church on. Or to see if you're here as part of the people of God, gathering like a bunch of Daniels, little bitty cogs in a big story about a big God doing something awesome in a big people. Man, I ask you to encourage, I encourage you this morning to examine yourself. I ask you to examine yourselves. If you're here as individuals, now's the time to repent. If you're afraid of sheepism or lemmingism, we put ism on the end of being a lemming. If that's kept you from being a meaningful part of the people of God, now's the time to repent. You just heard it. You heard it amply developed. I would say amply developed. There's lots of passages we considered this morning, and it wasn't opinion. If I just got up here and shared my opinion, man, that's not worth much. But if we're dealing with contextually contextually obedient, obediently, contextually handled passages. And they're developing that the church, ideally, is a people that are part of each other's lives. And you're not part of that? Man, now's the time to repent. And then take and eat and move out obediently, responding to that as part of a people. If you're not going to do that, if you want to continue on as an individual don't take and eat because it might make you sick. If you're not here trusting Christ with the Gauls and the Celts and the former Druids, you're not casting everything that you are at the cross as that wall-destroying work that brings a husband and wife together just like it brings a Jew and Gentile together, that brings two friends that are crossways with each other just like it brings a Jew and Gentile together, then don't take and eat. But if you are, man, you take and eat heartily because it's good nourishment. Because then we'll be taking and eating as the church. Let's distribute the elements.